everybody. Welcome to Fully Puffed, a Gilmore Girls podcast. I'm Grace. I'm one of your hosts. I'm also joined by Catherine. Hello. And we are very, very lucky and privileged today to be joined by one of my best friends, Emily Borst, who's also known as Ebo and will be referred to as such on the <laughs> podcast. Ebo, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for inviting me to talk about one of my favorite shows. You're my friend who I can remember in college talking, you know, being a Gilmore Girls fan. And I always thought if Ebo likes it, then I should get back into it because Ebo is brilliant and she's such a perceptive thinker and cultural critic. I don't know if I would call myself a cultural critic. I'll call you a cultural critic. And she's one of the smart girls that we talk about the show portraying and, you know, being interested in Gilmore Girls. And I was like, all right. If Ebo has been into it for this long, I should give it another go. And now here we are. And now here we are on the podcast. So this is an episode that I have always enjoyed when I do a rewatch. And I've always thought of it as one of my favorite episodes, or at least one of my favorite early episodes. And now rewatching it for the podcast, I definitely have more mixed feelings about it. Yeah, it's definitely a lot sadder than I remember it being. It's a lot sadder. It's a lot darker visually. I was hoping we would talk about this. Even just the opening, uh, like the cold open at Friday night dinner, the lighting is so dark. It is yeah. so dark. I was like, is my is the contrast on my TV wrong? No, they just did not do a good job lighting the episode. Do you think that's deliberate that it's so dark? I think it almost has to be because at the end, it's very morose too. And they like pan out and Lorelai is sitting there by herself. Yeah, and then as I'm going to discuss when we get to the end and then when we talk about pop culture references the reference to hl Mencken is actually extremely dark and disturbing <laughs> and like i looked him up at the end and i wish that i'd watched the whole episode knowing what i i know about him now because it lends just a kind of creepiness and a darkness to the to the episode that i would not have otherwise read into it speaking of the opening scene why do we think that this is what the episode opens with out of anything they could be talking about like the fact that they fired the cook and that they have a new one and that Richard can't remember the names of any of the cooks to the point where he gets them mixed up even if they have different genders it's only three episodes into the series so I feel like they're still trying really hard to shove it down our throats that like oh they have this revolving door of staff they're so hard to work with but it was a really odd way of portraying that and I agree that they're still trying to like shove that down our throats. And I think they're sort of trying to set up the dynamic of like, they're elitists, this is how they treat people. It also sort of sets Richard up as interestingly, like, <laughs> interestingly absent-minded mm-hmm. in a way that I think is like a really key part of his character throughout the show. And that we don't get all of that much of in the early episodes. And like, not absent-minded, but maybe necessarily, but sort of more interested in the intellectual world in the same way that Rory is to the extent that he has a lot going on and he doesn't 
you know, notice trivial things like what gender their chefs are. One thing also, though, that I want to point out about elitism with regard to this opening scene is that, um, like, okay, I've been reading, I <laughs> I think, like, be doing this podcast has made me more interested in reading for pleasure again, which is something that I've fully lost in grad school. <laughs> oh, that makes me so happy. Not yeah. that you lost it, but that you're coming back to it. But I've been reading, um, I just read, I just finished Donna Tartt's The Secret History, and I'm now deep into Brett Easton Ellis, which is like just all East Coast elitism. And one thing that I've noticed in Ellis particularly is that like nobody knows who anyone is and everyone calls each other the wrong name. And it's this sort of like negation of identity. That's really <laughs> like constant negation of identity. And so I don't know if I would have picked up on that as being a specifically like elitist thing, aside from the fact that they're talking about their servants. <laughs> but I don't know. I definitely want to talk about who this this episode was written by because yeah. I'm not sure if I'm like giving her too much credit. No, I think that's really interesting. And I think the the lack of names and identity also points to like the disposability of yeah. the servants in the Gilmore's yeah, exactly. lives. Like it doesn't really matter who's filling this role towards them or whether they're a man or a woman. They're the cook, they're the chef, they're here. It doesn't matter whether their name is Sarah or Mira. That's how they treat people. It's some people's identities are very important to them. And some identities get sketched out really well in the show and some don't. And I think that's done to make a point about who the Gilmars are. And I yeah. think that's something they're really trying to hammer down in the early episodes. Something that happens after we get the theme song and the sort of, I always call it a cold open, even though I know this is not the right term for what the stuff before the credits is, but we get the Gilmores and Lorelai and Rory talking about Rory's uh, sports requirement at Chilton, which okay. is- Okay, what is this, what <laughs> is this sports requirement? This is never brought up again. Well, it's never brought up again. Basically for our listeners who aren't familiar with the show, there's a requirement Rory tells us, or Lorelai tells us that uh, Rory play a sport. A team uh, sport. A team sport, yes. Which I guess golf is a team sport. Yeah, they have golf teams. They have golf teams, okay. And as Ebo said, it's never brought up again. <laughs> we never see Rory coming back from basketball practice. <laughs> we never see Rory play golf for Chilton. Are we supposed to assume that she comes off of this golf outing and goes and joins the golf team? <laughs> Make the varsity golf team at her elite private school? I don't, I don't think so. <laughs> this is definitely an example of Gilmore Girls continuity, which is that like, you know, as we talked about last episode, Catherine, like Gilmore Girls does not care a lot about the details they throw out. But this is a pretty central plot point. And you would think that they had like a throwaway line maybe in a later episode about like, oh, Rory, you didn't even make the golf team or something like that. I still am like kind of thrown by the fact that this is not written by Amy Sherman Palladino. It's the first one so far. And I think later in the show, they're all written by her, I think. So, or Dan Palladino. Except for season, season seven, right? <laughs> like in a lot of times when somebody else's name is on the script, like in the later episodes, she pretty much, you know, like somebody else got their writing credit, but she had a pretty heavy hand in it. So do you want to talk a little bit about that, Catherine? Like the fact that somebody else wrote the episode? Well, yeah, so I, um, this is just like a personal thing that I enjoy, um, but I think it's interesting to look at the writer and director of any television episode. So this was directed by Adam Nimoy, son of Leonard. Oh, that's um, so weird. <laughs> I know, right? And he has directed, I mean, he directed quite a bit of like random TV episodes, 
the only thing I knew that he'd ever done was he did like a documentary about Spock. Pretty close to the source material on that one. <laughs> yeah, right. But he like has done a lot of sci-fi shows. So he directed a few episodes of Star Trek Next Generation and like Babylon 5. But then within like the YA sphere, he also did a few episodes of Party of Five. And so he's like, he, I guess, was trying to be a TV director um, around this time. But I still think it's weird. And he never came back to direct any other episodes of Gilmore Girls. So that's kind of odd. And then it was written by a woman named Joanne Waters, who I think on IMDb, I found her as Joanna and Joanne, but she directed or she wrote like three things or something. Ever? Yeah, like this episode of Gilmore Girls, an episode of Dawson's Creek. And then that's about it. And then she vanished. So it's this is like a big outlier in the world of Gilmore Girls. Like... The first, the pilot was directed by Leslie Linkenslatter, who was an established director and who's gone on to direct tons of other things. The woman who directed last week had directed quite a few things that like were recognizable. I think yeah. we need to do a spinoff podcast where we track down where Joanne Waters is now. <laughs> <laughs> that goes in well with our like true crime Gilmore Girls thing where we talk about how Gilmore Girls could potentially be a true crime television show slash podcast. I love the revival, but that could have also been what the revival was. Oh, Kirk trying to solve a murder. I would eat oh, that. Oh, yeah. man. Yes. That's a really good idea for a show. I was going to say, maybe we can like, remember when people did crowdfunding for TV shows in like thousands? Yeah. We should do that. If Gilmore Girls had a murder and supernatural elements, though, it just would be Twin Peaks. So. Yeah, as, very- <laughs> as we've talked about, Gilmore Girls is about like, one step off from being Twin Weeks, especially this this episode is very, I mean, I hate that I keep abusing the word uncanny, but Leonard Nimoy's son loves that uncanny dark lighting. <laughs> yes. Okay, so I that's all I have to say. About no, I, the writer. <laughs> I was just gonna say, do you think that the fact that it's a different writer explains some of the stuff that we'll talk about in this episode? Uh, some of the stuff we see we're a little uncomfortable with or that you know we don't feel like this is really a Gilmore Girls thing do you think that explains it I do yeah for sure I was gonna say it feels like somebody was given a brief of like this is character x there are these are the five bullet points that you need to know about them yeah that is kind of how the episode goes yeah for sure and yet at the same time it also establishes the characters like uh specifically Richard and Emily better than some of the previous episodes yeah and I think that's why I've always been drawn to it because I do feel like it's a step forward in giving us more depth of like the Richard and Emily relationship just in short interactions between them. It definitely tells us so much more about Richard and I think it's the first time they get Richard right versus earlier him being sort of more of a controlling presence. Now he's shown as like the sort of more introverted, absent-minded scholar that he is. Yeah. And I think it does a great job setting up the Rory-Richard relationship. Even like to go off of that, I think it does a really good job of kind of laying the groundwork for what we'll learn throughout about the Lorelai-Richard relationship. Because throughout there are these like fleeting moments where he talks about Lorelai and you can see his face change. And like, especially later on when Rory says something about Lorelai always being disappointed that she never got a chance to travel. You can see that this is like brand new information to him. And that's something I want to talk about a lot throughout the course of this episode, because I think that's something really smart that you pointed out, Evo, and that is a central dynamic that I think might go unnoticed if you're watching the episode for the first time, is how much 
it matters that this is an outing that Rory takes with Richard rather than Emily. Mm -hmm. And I think how that affects how Lorelai reacts to it. Mm -hmm. So we'll talk about that. Let's just return to where we are in the story itself, which by the way, the summary of this episode, which I meant to do at the beginning is very simple. Rory goes out to a golf outing at the country club with her grandfather, Richard, and Lorelai, her mother, has mixed feelings about it. So it's determined based on Emily uh, sort of getting involved pretty heavily that Richard plays golf at the country club every week. And why doesn't he teach Rory how to golf since Chilton is so strict about this sports requirement that it apparently has and really is intending to adhere to throughout the rest of the show. So Lorelai freaks out pretty much immediately and goes and talks to Emily about like, why did you do this? Uh, You know, this is just another example of you being controlling. Do we think at the beginning that Lorelai is opposed to the outing because she is worried about Rory, you know, bonding with her grandparents and liking their world too much? Or do we think genuinely she thinks Rory might not want to go? I think the immediate reaction is more towards the side of her not wanting Rory to be exposed to this world Mm -hmm. or like like this thing that she has rejected so hard and so deliberately for the past 16 years. And since she can't see herself enjoying that, of course, Rory would not have fun. I don't even think she's thinking about Rory. I think it's just all driven by this. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, there is a line later in the episode where Lorelai is like, in so many words says that she can she cannot feel empathy for what Rory is experiencing she was like it's great that you had a a good time with your grandfather but that's not something I can relate to I mean I get that but at the same time that is like we talked about last week just her inability to see the world through anyone's perspective but her own and that's kind of a startling lack of empathy I I do think Lorelai is ultimately an empathetic person but we're seeing these little sort of narcissistic traits that are popping up that she clearly inherited from Emily. (laughs) At the same time, I was trying to put myself in her shoes and I don't have a similar situation for this, like via via my family, but I think that, you know, do you ever have a friend who like, or you don't, you say you don't really like somebody at all. And then you have a close friend, like say Ebo, I didn't like someone. And then I found out you hung out with them and had a great time. I wouldn't be mad about it, but I would be like, be confused. I would be confused. And I think it's sort of a a hyper extension of that sort of feeling, which is like, well, I really like this person and I kind of don't want them associating with someone I don't like because I don't, you know, get what that person would be attracted to about the other person that I don't like. So I can kind of see it happening, but I think because this is sort of the central sensitive dynamic of Lorelai's life, that like she's define so much of herself by not wanting to be part of her parents' world. Like, of course, her reaction is ratcheted up by like 10,000. Yeah, her like almost entire personality has been formed just to like be deliberately the opposite of everything that she was grown up with. Like, it's become such a huge part of her character that she cannot even, like it's a personal attack to even like any of it. I think you're right. And then to have Rory, who she sees so much of herself in and is her best friend as well as daughter, turn towards this stuff. Since they're so similar, it must seem like literally inexplicable to Lorelai how Rory could be attracted to that. In Lorelai's defense, though, I will say one of my 
least favorite things in the entire world, and I'm sure I'm not alone, is being coerced into doing a social thing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and like, that is something I could see my mom doing just because she knows my personality. Like if a grandparent were to like try to force me to do something, a situation that they, my mom knew I was uncomfortable with, I can totally see my mom being like, no, you don't have to do that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I think there is like some, that's why I asked that question at the beginning. Like, do we think that Lorelai was just like, maybe Rory won't be into this initially. I think there's some normal mom protectiveness in there, which is like, look, I want to get my daughter out of this thing. I don't think she'll enjoy. Yeah. I think that's overshadowed by the underlying dynamics there, but she doesn't want Rory to have to do something she doesn't like. Then we shift gears a little bit to the in scene. There's a mother and two twin daughters and the twin daughters are having a wedding at the Independence Inn where Lorelai is the general manager. What did I you guys? I love this mother. I like I love her too. I'm obsessed yeah. with the actress, like all the acting choices she makes. She's giving it to us. I so um my husband and I were watching the show Party Down the <laughs> day before, and that actress was in the episode, and I couldn't place her. And I was like, I was like, why I see her with like a shawl, like very like wealthy with like a brooch or something. I was like, you're having like a vision of her. (laughs) And there she was. (laughs) Oh my God. That's very funny. It's a very different dynamic to encounter her in. Yes, it was. Um, And that's why I couldn't place her, but she still had that same kind of aloof, like snobby way about her. But yeah, it's funny, just like kept imagining her with like a suit with one of those like scarves, big scarves wrapped around her. And I was like, but what would I watch that had someone (laughs) dressed like that? It was Gilmore Girls. It was Gilmore Girls. Yeah, I love her. Like I said, she's she's really going in like 100%. She hates those daughters. (laughs) The line about birth being a high point, I... I was like, that is, oh, I laughed out loud. So funny. That to me seems like an Amy Sherman Palladino lie. Oh yeah. yeah. I was like, I'm sure she had some input on some of this and that came from her. I mean, would you hate your life if those were your daughters? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> what do we think of the decision? I mean, they didn't have to do twins, identical twins. Is it just a comedy thing? I think, so. I think it kind of goes into the almost, not quite like, fantasy vibes that sometimes come up but it's just like a weird like a weird quirky thing I like that they do it I think that this is a very funny plot line I think I'm genuinely trying not again to read too much like Brett Easton Ellis over this but there is something to me about this like the disposability of people in the like east coast moneyed class Mm -hmm. where like the mom hates her daughters and the daughters are kind of redundant because they're twins. And then the husbands are, or the fiancés are redundant because they're also twins. And so everybody is the same and nobody matters. Like, is that too nihilistic? No, I don't think so. And Gilmore Girls always does an interesting thing where like, now that I'm thinking about this, the characters in Stars Hollow are very fleshed out. Like even the, like the minute, you know, sort of side characters. Yeah. We encounter so many people in Richard and Emily's world that are like <laughs> mentioned once and tossed off. All of Emily's friends from the DAR, like very rarely do they appear on screen. They don't even have names. She'll like throw out a random name sometimes in later seasons and we'll never see them. That we have constant disposable maids. So it's yeah. a really interesting contrast between like, the humanity of the stars hollow world and the disposability and lack of like three-dimensional character development 
in the moneyed Richard and Emily world. Right, right. Or even right. just like the transactional nature of all of those types of relationships yeah. versus the like very deep, very personal, emotional ones in Stars Hollow. Oh, that's brilliant, dude. That's why you got to watch the show 30,000 times because that's what that's, <laughs> that's what comes out when, you, when, when all of us have seen it so much. All of this gets ratcheted up to a much, you know, more comic level when we see the twin grooms. Yeah. Um, which is so funny. I love that. <laughs> It's we're already so absurd at that point. I love when they lean into stuff like that. Yes. When they just take it and just like dial up the volume. And they do it so much in the later seasons too that I think it's really fun to see it happen early. Mm-hmm. Because so as as much as there's a lot of uncanniness in the early episodes, they also play a lot of stuff straight. And I think it's really fun to see things like this appear pretty early on in the show. Maybe that's one of the reasons I enjoyed the episode. Yeah, and like Mich- uh, Michelle putting the post-it note on one of their backs. <laughs> oh, I love it. Pure gold. It's, it's so funny too how Michelle is like, oh, you know, let me know when the clowns and the dancing midgets come in. <laughs> it's funny because like when Emily plans Suki's wedding in season two, Brie's yes. like, yeah, we have dancing midgets. That is amazing. That has to be a deliberate callback. But then what, do we, okay, on the topic of callbacks, sure. do we think that the season three episode with Jess getting uh, attacked by a swan is a callback to this Michelle <laughs> anecdote about being attacked by a swan? Like that is just too specific of a reference for it not to be intentional. I think it has to be. I will counter only to say that as someone who was chased by geese. Oh my child, God, seriously? <laughs> And who then developed severe ornithophobia. Is that what it's called? Fear of birds. Fear of birds. Oh, wow. Yeah, I've had lots of unfortunate bird encounters in my in my day. And like, I genuinely was terrified of birds. Like, uh, I had a true phobia. Like, oh, wow. I would get like sweaty and shaky and like really from all birds. I mean, like sparrows. Like, I was terrified of birds for years. And then... um it kind of started before 2020, but during COVID, you know, lockdown and the subsequent two years, I got really into bird watching and started feeding birds, uh, got a bird feeder, got a bird bath. So it's like exposure therapy. I was going to say, it sounds like what they do for PTSD. Mm-hmm. And so now I'm cool with birds, but all that to say. <laughs> Thank you. For um, I'm sorry. It, I made light of it initially. I didn't know it was, it was a recurring thing. No, 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 it's hilarious. I, I know it's hilarious. <laughs> like I was, yeah, I was chased by a goose. And then there were the, there was this part called Swan Lake in my, um, where I, where I grew up and everybody knew that swans would bite. They're like mean. And then a friend of mine lived in a neighborhood where this one neighbor had like pet peacocks. And As one does. There, yeah. I mean, it was a fancy neighborhood, but they would Oklahoma, That's so interesting that they had peacocks there. Yeah. Well, they were pretty, but they sound, I mean, if you have never heard of peacock scream, Google it because it is bone chilling. It is terrifying. And they're not super nice either. And uh, yeah, so I think maybe it's possible it's a callback, but also I have a feeling that I can't be alone. Uh, Michelle can't be alone. Jess can't be alone. I think lots of people have had bad experiences with birds. I'm just going to do a quick Google search to see if there are any stats about number of swan attacks per year. (laughs) 
The Gilmore Girls universe, for all of its lack of realism in some areas, is apparently very realistic and like gritty about the prevalence of bird attacks. Yeah, large fowl, just stay away. Stay away, people. (laughs) I knew that geese could be mean. So the Jess and the goose stuff always seemed more realistic to me, but I was like, swans. Wait a second, Jess, it's a swan. It's not a goose. Swan, it's not a goose. Okay, so even weirder, it's it's two swan attacks. Wait, yeah. maybe the same swans. Like maybe they got out <laughs> after the wedding. They weren't like penned back in and they've gone that, and like become feral and they live at the pond. I think that actually might be the case. I think that that is what I want to believe. <laughs> so I, my, like, you know how the kids call it like headcanon? That's my headcanon. <laughs> yes. It's <laughs> my okay. Gilmore Girls headcanon is that the swans, it's the same swans. I want a Cora thread right now. <laughs> that... You know, there's no numbers about swans, but apparently <laughs> ostriches kill about seven people a year. They kill oh, seven people a year? How do they kill? Yeah. Um, their feet are tipped with claws up to 10 centimeters long, and they can kick hard oh. enough to burst a hole in a Chevy truck. Oh, oh no. What? You should consider any distance less than 100 meters from a wild ostrich as unsafe. That decides to attack, you're in big trouble. That's so far. What? I think I just, my phobia is coming. I was going to say for Catherine. Wait. Anyway. I'm very shaken by this now. Okay, so Michelle is Moving the, on. <laughs> correct. We were mocking him. I was mocking him. Laurel, I was mocking him. But he's validated by our yes. search. <laughs> it would have been really funny if they got ostriches imported for the wedding. Oh, God. <laughs> Oops, we meant to order doves and ended up with ostriches. <laughs> birds. I love when Kirk... supply chain issues. <laughs> <laughs> I love when Kirk, who may not be Kirk, when Lorelai's like, these are, tw- this is like 20 swans. And Kirk He's goes, not even Mick in this one. He just has unnamed swan <laughs> handler. <laughs> yeah. He goes, sure, why not? <laughs> Do you guys think of this as Kirk? I mean, no. Like, no. No. I tend to think of it as another proto-Kirk because I think yeah. of like Kirk, first official Kirk when he first uses the name. And I think it's the next episode or the one after that. He's um, not like wacky enough to be Kirk. No, yeah. Very, he's very straight about the swans, even though he makes, you know, he's not bringing the 20. Really, he would try to get 20 swans. <laughs> oh, man. He would wrangle them. <laughs> Swan wrangler. He would fail, but he would wrangle them. He couldn't even have a dog walking business. Oh, I love that plot so much. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so we covered the the swan stuff. Um, we're going now to the Gilmore's house where they're waiting for Rory to show up. She's late. Uh, the Gilmore's are never later in the show than they are these first four episodes. Yeah. They really use this as a plot point. And then they're like, okay, we we used all that up. All, all, all stuff. <laughs> we get it. They're punctual. Yeah. <laughs> we're good. So we get much more of the Richard and Emily dynamic here than I think we have so far in the show. We, we get, I think, what will be the Richard and Emily way they relate to each other throughout Gilmore Girls, which is that Emily sort of manages stuff for Richard. Richard is reluctant or spacey or like, as, as Emily says, he'd get his hair cut at the butcher if I'd let him. <laughs> I love that. But he eventually comes around and he likes that Emily manages his life. Do we buy that Richard initially wouldn't be excited to take Rory? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, because I, I feel like at this point they like don't they don't know her. Yeah, that's fair. 
they don't know that she she will actually bond with Richard. Like, I don't find it surprising that he would be reluctant, but the degree to which he is, I found to be a little bit surprising. Mm. Like, he was just, like, just a hard no, hard no. And so, I don't know. I found that to be a little bit, like I said, surprising. I think that's astute because I think the Richard that happens later in the show would be maybe like a little reluctant at the beginning. softer, yeah. softer. They soften his edges so much by like even two episodes from now. Mm -hmm. And this is the beginning of that. Like we see the Richard that we will come to know sort of developing. Emily says too that like what's important to her here is that they're, you know, it's the first time they get to show their granddaughter off at the club. I also think it's that this is the, she senses that this could be the beginning of their relationship. Mm Mm-hmm. Too. It's not just, oh, we're showing my granddaughter off. She, they see like, oh, this is the potential for us to get close to Rory. And that's why I think she's so excited about it when they close the door and, you know, they go off and she's so triumphant. Should we talk about the hat though? Oh my God. Oh, the hat. Who doesn't like the hat? I think the hat would be cute if Rory was like five years younger. The fact that she is 16 and has this goofy looking beret on, I... <laughs> I am a defender of the hat. I think. Oh, no. <laughs> okay. Here's the thing. It's objectively stupid. And so, <laughs> but I think that if you think of it from that angle, like it's funny, it's not like, oh, Rory looks like great in this hat. It's like, oh, it's a funny hat. And like, she's being a good sport by wearing it. I wouldn't wear it, but I think I recognize that I would look so bad in it that Rory looking slightly less bad is charming to me. But I can't believe Emily let her leave to go to the club wearing this like crocheted beret with a pom-pom on top. Like she's so status or like image focused that I I can't believe that she encouraged that Lori wear this. <laughs> That's a good point though. I, 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 I can see that that is true. It's the colors that, that are the problem. <laughs> the hat itself is fine, but yeah, it is. It's the weird choice. Why is it in like Rasta colors? I was going to say that. <laughs> have this this item did they like accidentally go to hash bash in ann arbor i don't know (laughs) is that what the store is called in ann arbor michigan so some backstory my mom and i accidentally ended up at a weed festival in ann arbor (laughs) michigan it's an annual event where a bunch of people go on this like i forget if it's a quad at the university or if it's in a park in ann arbor they just go and they all light up at the same time. That is, that is like basically it. it. <laughs> and so we had to be there that weekend and we were walking through it and we were like, why does it smell like weed here? <laughs> it's, it, it's the Ann Arbor hash bash. <laughs> oh God. Imagine Emily stumbling upon that. <laughs> that's another good idea for a Gilmore Girls spinoff. They should just do like little episodes. Like one is Kirk solving a murder mystery. Another one is Emily ending up at the Ann Arbor hash bash. <laughs> I would love to watch that so much. Oh my gosh. That's also a really lame idea for a festival. No offense uh, to- Well, apparently, I got this wrong at Bar Trivia last week. Oh. Um, Apparently, Ann Arbor was the first city in the US to decriminalize marijuana. Okay. Fair. I was just saying they should have another component to it. Like, it shouldn't just be that they all light up at the same time. They should walk around a little bit. They like, (laughs) there's music. Oh, okay. Okay. There's like stuff. Okay. It's like what you would expect from a bunch of people who mark their calendars every year for the Ann Arbor hash bash. Like (laughs) whatever you're picturing is accurate. If any of our listeners have attended or know someone who has attended the Ann Arbor hash bash, 
we would love to hear from you. Tell us your experiences there. Um, so two people who are decidedly not at the Ann Arbor Hash Bash, look at that segue, uh, are <laughs> and Richard, who are now at the club. They're having initial banter. It is awkward, but I think in being awkward, it is well done. It's exactly what you would expect from a grandfather and granddaughter who don't know each other. What I wanted to bring up here is like, what if Rory had turned out to be really good at golf? <laughs> like, what if she was a golf prodigy and then the show took off in a completely different direction? Pivot to <laughs> Rory's like journey to become Tiger Woods, as Emily says. If she did and she went to college in a full golf scholarship, there's no reason for them to continue the relationship. That would have removed the, the incentive to continue talking to the Gilmores. So that's the reason she's not good at golf. So she can't go to Yale in a full golf scholarship. Yeah, all for those. <laughs> yeah, I have uh, two of my my friends, Shelby and Michaela, met on their college golf team. They were D1 golfers. Oh my gosh. I actually taught a student, now that I say that, who um, my first year teaching, who was a, who was a golf team. He was on the golf team and he was very stressed out about it. It was a lot of pressure. A great amount of conditioning required to play golf. Right? Like, and they kind of allude to the show that like golf is not that physically strenuous and like you wouldn't think it is, but I guess it must be for if you're playing at a high level. Yeah. Or at least it's a good walk spoiled. You can tell that's a line that uh, Rory got from Lorelai. Actually, it's Mark Twain. Oh, okay. Or she had heard Lorelai say it. I love that. But no, well, but, no, but I, Rory would have gotten it if she read it. But mm -hmm. I think like it's great. I love that you thought that it, or it made you think of Lorelai because. One thing that, I mean, we'll talk about this more actually consistently throughout the podcast, but like, it's interesting to me how Lorelai had like, doesn't really have an education. Like she dropped out of school when she was 16, but she's so quick and she's so witty and she's so smart. Yeah. Um, that like, it does sound like something Lorelai would say, but it's Mark Twain, but that makes perfect sense to me. Lorelai is like an aphorism machine. Yeah. Though also Mark Twain sort of projected like the self-taught non from the academy thing. Like that was yeah. sort of his appeal too. So Lorelai and Mark Twain are too. He's in a pod. <laughs> so, I also like the way Richard teaches Rory to golf. I think it's cute that he says it requires two things, which is confidence and humility. It feels very Richard to me. Mm -hmm. um, and he's patient with her, even though she's absolutely terrible. I thought it was so cute when she initially swings and misses and like gets a huge chunk of grass taken off and he just kind of sheepishly like puts the grass back yeah. where it was. <laughs> He's doing such a good, he does such a great job, Edward Herman, in this, in this entire episode with like his little facial expressions and his bodily choice, movement choices. Yeah. Like you watch him loosen up or you can tell situations where he's feeling tense yeah. and when he's more loose. I love it. His body language is so different by the end of the episode. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Are either of you guys golf people? Have you ever golfed? I don't think I've ever been on a golf course. I don't ever. I don't think I've ever held a golf club in my life ever. <laughs> I have never been on a golf course. I've done mini golfing. I love mini golfing. I could see you being a good mini golfer, Evo. <laughs> just because I like things that are a little bit odd. That is not why. I just feel like you're talented at like interesting things. So maybe that's not <laughs> novelty way. sports. Novelty sports. Novelty <laughs> sport. I could, yes. If you were like, I'm good at mini golf or like, handball or something you know like <laughs> like racquetball I'd be like yeah okay like, I did I teach handball at diabetes camp I did not know the rules <laughs> I didn't know did you know it's in the Olympics yes have you ever watched a professional yeah. handball match it's it's intense yes 
the commentators at the Olympics were talking about like their experiences as former handball Olympians and like, oh, going in like 70. And I was like, oh my gosh, what? They were talking about like their extensive handball memories and career and like how it, it's it's not a new thing in the US. And what? Weird. This whole secret world of handball that we didn't know about and mini golf, I guess. So we see Richard pretty tense at the beginning. How do we see their relationship building? Like what are the dynamics through which that happens? I think there's like a little bit of surprise almost when Rory can kind of cite authors and writers that Richard is familiar with. And he, I think is kind of taken aback by that. But you can tell how little he knows about her. And I think as she kind of brings up things that he also is interested in, that he's also knowledgeable, like knowledgeable about, he sees some ins with her to figure out how to start building this relationship. It's interesting to me that he starts off by he's sort of envisioning what Rory's world is like. And he says that she would rather be at the mall. And I think the fact that she starts talking about travel, which is something that we talked about last week, mm-hmm. about how this is like a, a Lorelai and Rory quality that I forgot about later in the, the season, you know, they do go on their Europe trip and everything, but I forgot like how much that plays into Rory's personality, like early in the show. And it's like, her knowledge of Fez and wanting to go to Fez really impresses him. And I think it's just that he saw her as being like a a sort of isolated teenager or he saw her worldview as being very small. And once he realizes how expansive it is, he's intrigued and impressed. I agree with both of you. And you can see that building even before she mentions travel too. Like when she talks about the beauty of the club she's interested in and like wanting to go there to read. I feel like you can see Richard thinking through that comment as Edward Herman acts and you can yeah. see him th- it changes the way he thinks about the club and mm-hmm. then and at first like she asks him what he does and he kind of gives her the answer that he thinks she would want to hear which is like oh it's you know very complicated I don't want to bore you and then she does that disappointed little like okay and then he actually is like he recalibrates and he's yeah. like oh this you know what this is someone I can explain the full depth of what my you know my job description is to her And then by the time they get to the travel stuff, I completely agree with both of you, like her intellectual curiosity and the expansiveness of her world, it probably reminds him a lot of himself because I think we're supposed to see the parallels between the two of them there. And I know we had talked a lot about common language of like interests last episode and the common references being like how people relate to each other on Gilmore Girls. And Ebo, what you were saying about like that he senses she's into the same stuff he is, like authors and travel and intellectual pursuits, gives Richard a language through which he feels like he can talk to and relate to her. I also think it's important to bring up, just to like throw a wrench into this very earnest conversation that we're having, his kind of appreciation of Rory, it gets shifted even higher once he gets approval from his peers as they like spend more time at the club. And so just to like go back, like obviously he is a lot softer than Emily, whatever, whatever, but he's still very like status focused throughout all of this. I think that's really interesting because I think that there's also a moment where he kind of differentiates himself from the rest of the guys in the club, which is when like they're all talking and he, you know, tells them about Rory and you can see he's excited by their approval, but then he goes and continues reading his newspaper, like instead of being in this gossip. But I also really like your reading Ebo because you're right like it's it's reinforced and probably is a much better bonding moment for him because they he gets validation from his friends who you know none of them have granddaughters who are as intellectual as Rory none of them have granddaughters who want to go to Fez even though he pretends to be above it he's 
maybe not just as invested in that status stuff as Emily is, but certainly very invested in it. Yeah. And one thing that I've never thought too deeply about because I've always just thought, okay, country club is the setting of this episode, but like the implication of what a country club is as like a symbol of status, a symbol of money, a symbol of like (laughs) racism and anti-Semitism and elitism and like so many of the problems in our society. Like the fact that Rory fits in there impresses him. That's not necessarily a good thing. You know what I mean? I also had not thought about the country club as more than a setting, Catherine. And I think that this is as much Rory bonding with her grandfather as it is like Rory expressing interests that confirm that she belongs there. Which is something that we see a lot later on and like, especially season five, as she starts to like, you know, get to know Logan and a little bit more of like somebody else in this world too. Like that, this is really, I think, laying the groundwork for everything that's going to come later. Yeah, that's what really interests me about this episode and why I've, I continue to like it is because I think it sets the tone for that central conflict all throughout the series, which is that Rory is interested in the things that Lorelai ran away from and she likes being in this environment and she fits in there really well, which is fascinating because like Lorelai is interested in a lot of like the intellectual stuff that Rory is, but she just has a different orientation and personality type. Like it's not like Lorelai, as much as we say, you know, she didn't go to college, she didn't finish her education, which is true. She's just as smart and just Mm -hmm. as interested in references and movies and she's not as big of a reader but she loves travel but she does she chooses not to participate in that mm-hmm. or like could have fit in there but doesn't want to which is something I think is interesting to think about as like my kind of read on the whole situation is that well not the whole situation but like this part of it is that you can see Emily and Richard are starting to see Rory as almost like the surrogate daughter that they wish they had. Like so many aspects of Rory's personality and who she ends up being or what they were expecting and wanting for Lorelai. Yeah. I think Lorelai on some level sees this as well, which is I think why we get such a intense pushback against all of this too. And that's why Suki says, which I always thought was a weird comment until I started thinking about it in the way you described Evo. Lorelai's like why am I mad about this Suki says you're jealous they like her better than you Mm -hmm. and that and Lorelai like doesn't pick up on that she's like no I'm mad about like Rory choosing this world blah 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 but I think that's a really core part of what's going on here is that and that'll be like expressed later in the show too like they'll talk about like oh Rory's the good angel daughter that you wish you had yeah but she's almost their second chance the Mm -hmm. daughter they wish they had and that leaves Lorelai with no place because she thought that Rory was like the person who made her belong and the person that she could always relate to. And now that Rory is being assimilated into a different world, she's left out in the cold. Like she literally- Hang alone on a couch. Right, yeah. like, and we'll talk about that scene. Like she's literally left alone at the end of the episode. Yeah. I also want to bring up too, like what Evo had said about, I don't know if this is the right time to do it, but like the travel interest that Richard, even as we're talking so cynically about all of this, I think that- it points a lot to like the Richard Lorelai relationship and how he feels like he don't know. Do you want to talk about this? We can talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I think like this is the first moment in this episode when I really picked up on it, where you can see just like the sadness in his eyes when he hears that Lorelai feels like she missed out on being able to travel and like actually did have some interest in some of these things that maybe he didn't pick up on when yeah. she was younger. You can just tell 
like he like really cares about her but clearly has no idea like he doesn't know her never has and just doesn't really know how to relate to her yeah I think this episode is as much about the Richard Lorelai relationship as it is about the Lor or the Rory Richard relationship Mm -hmm. I agree a hundred percent yeah and it's it's much more subtly done but I think that there's a reason why it matters that Rory is going out on an outing with Richard. It matters in a different way than it would be if she were going out with Emily. Mm-hmm. And because the defining characteristic of the Lorelai Richard relationship is distance yeah. and feeling like they have no way to talk to each other or understand each other. And maybe hearing that Lorelai has some of these common interests, as Ebo said, Richard's thinking, like, hey, this would have allowed me to have that sort of common language in order to communicate with her. And he's, re- he's regretting that she hasn't, he didn't, he didn't know that. But at the same time, Lorelai has chosen to not engage with that common language. Like she's interested in travel. She knows Richard's interested in travel. She just felt like she couldn't talk to him about it. Mm-hmm. But he can communicate so well with Rory about it. Like in a later scene when Lorelai gets the call from Richard and he wants to talk to Rory and Lorelai says, oh, that's the first time he's ever called the inn and yeah. it's talked to Rory. Like you can really, that's really painful. Mm-hmm. Also just as an aside, Yes. It's like what, 2000, 2001 when this is happening? She's going to let Rory hold up the phone line for her business to <laughs> her grandfather. I'm sorry. <laughs> like, thank you for calling the Independence in. You're going to be on hold for a while because Rory needs to talk to Richard <laughs> <laughs> about a book. Like, it's not like somebody died. No. It's like a, it's like a very famous, you know, like it's an inn where they later say celebrities stay at. Like, she's going to be on the phone for 45 minutes. No one's going to be able to make a reservation. Yeah. And as much as I want to say, like, maybe he called the personal line. I don't think Richard and Emily would know to call. They had to have just like. <laughs> Richard in later seasons, like, doesn't know how to set up an answering machine. Like, there's <laughs> no way that he knows how to call, like, a different line for the independence in. <laughs> he does know how to set up Wi-Fi. <laughs> oh, yeah. What is. Oh, right. We'll talk about, we'll talk about that. I'm Googling you. You are not. <laughs> Listeners, this is in a later season. It'll be fun though. I, th- this is this is great. I hadn't thought about like, cause I'm very much watching the fashion progression. Like, oh yeah. Suki's shirt. Like we started the show very nineties, mm-hmm. very sort of, especially Rory was sort of grungy mm-hmm. and we are easing in to early aughts, terrible, terrible fashion. And I feel like like tie-dye sparkly shrunken baby doll nonsense is like the first of the bad fashion to come and it makes me sad it's an omen of what we are about to see a terrible <laughs> omen <laughs> get ready for Lorelai's string of tiny purses oh god I feel like I've never noticed those can you be our tiny purse correspondent <laughs> I'll keep an eye on the situation on <laughs> like a recurring tape segment it's like hi it's Evo here with the tiny purse news tiny purses and then this is something that like I always thought was weird even in the early 2000s but like these t-shirts like shrunken and I remember like Abercrombie had a lot of these even though I didn't wear Abercrombie I don't know how I know this oh you were culturally aware of them even if you yeah that would advertise if you went to middle school in the 2000s and you know but they would advertise like fake businesses Mm -hmm. Lorelai is the queen of this style and I hate it I don't understand why. But like kind of this. like washed out coloring on them. Yeah. Where they like, they were clearly supposed to think like, oh, it's from a business because it would be like a cool thing to do to have a vintage t-shirt from a business. But you're 13 years old and like, where would you ever have gone to pick this up? 
Yeah. And they were often like sexually explicit or not explicit, yes. but like suggestive. Mm -hmm. My school had a rule oh. about like, if you could wear certain things like that. What if your original middle school came down pretty hard on that type of clothing? Oh, yeah. they'd have like rhinestones on them too. And no, no, no. A bit more of an enjoyable part of the Gilmore Girls episode, I think, is the time they spend in the steam rooms. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Very funny. First, I want to bring up, are the grandfathers or the older men, are they a little too cruel about their granddaughters? Because like, what the heck? I mean, I think it's just like this generation kids these days kids these, yeah <laughs> this granddaughter looks like she fell off a turnip truck yeah that one was bad I'll give you that <laughs> the other guy says she's running through the streets like a wild dog like I get it but like whoa what is the I think is, is it potato truck turnip truck one of those what does that mean it just means you like fell off a truck and you like hit the road or like you hit all the turnips and you your, your face is busted yeah, if you like think if you imagine just like the arc that a potato would take as it falls off of like a moving dump truck. It's just like boink, boink, boink. And then it's all bruised. I thought it meant, and I don't know why I think this. So that's why I asked. <laughs> I thought it meant like unsophisticated. It also I don't, I can mean that, I think. Yeah. So I think that's, okay. I think you're, we're all right. I think turn up truck is when you're unsophisticated <laughs> and the potato truck is when you're ugly. This is why I asked, because I thought it, it means like, oh, you're a rube, like a country bumpkin. But if your grandfather is at the club, you're obviously wealthy. So that didn't make any sense to me. And then I thought, does it mean you look like you fell off a truck? <laughs> like yes, that is what it means. No, yeah. That's terrible. It's not nice. One thing I did want to say is they bring up debutante balls in this episode, but I feel like this is sort of that first step. Like this is Rory's debut at the club. Yes. But remember in the debutante ball episode where they keep talking about how like, you'll be the prettiest one because so-and-so has a scratch on her face. Katie Hetherington fell off her horse and she has a scratch on her face. And they say it so matter-of-factly. She is the prettiest of this group, but now she's like marred and you will be. I always felt yeah. bad for Rory in that scene, which was like, uh, I feel like that was not necessary for them to be like, well, don't worry. There's somebody who's better looking than you here, but like she fell off her horse. So I guess I don't, I don't like to think that people would be that superficial, but you know, and I guess we could even give Lorelai some credit here. Like this is not a healthy world. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's a good point. And then, and, and we'll see that really explicitly with the lady who has the daughter in the frilly dress and is like screaming yeah. at her like, Mm -hmm. As much as we can say, like, why just, you know, Lorelai is selfish and not letting Rory participate in this world. Like, this is not a world full of nice people, even if they're being nice and approving to Rory in this scene. Yeah, the minute you do something that doesn't align with their worldview, she knows what, like, what that feels like and what that looks like. Yeah, and I think that that a lot of Lorelai's strength of character comes from her ability to, or, you know, is evidence of her ability to not conform to this and know the consequences and not care anyway. Mm -hmm. though it is it's played for laughs here yeah though like while we're talking about the sauna there are two things I want to bring up the first of which is why does Richard Gilmore own Adidas slides <laughs> I want to talk about that that's the first time I noticed about the footwear did Emily go to a footlocker to purchase these I just have a lot of questions about where these came from 
Oh my gosh, they are. I actually like triple did a triple take at the screen because they are clearly Adidas slides that somebody turned so that they wouldn't have the like Adidas logo mm -hmm. visible to the camera. Those are really popular. My dad had those. I mean, they're still popular. People still wear them. Yeah, true. And the second thing I want to bring up is what is like, this is again, just thinking about parallels down the line of these like weird things. In season five, when Luke is trying to buy the Twickham house for him and Lorelai, the town elders are also in Asana. Yes. So why do we only like, I'm sorry. Like I, ugh. are people saunaing this much in Connecticut? I don't know if I've ever been in a sauna. I don't know. I think maybe you would need to be a country club member. I've never been. Have you been in one, Evo? Like at a spa? Ew, no. No, they're very unhygienic. Yeah, I would just be too afraid of fungus. I'm sorry. And that is my favorite line in the episode. <laughs> <laughs> That's my vote for what we call the episode. When Rory says, if it makes you feel better, I think I got a fungus from the steam room. And Lorelai says, yes, it does. I, I love that. Yeah. And you definitely are getting a fungus from the steam room. That's why Richard is smart to wear shoes. Yeah. Ew. Ew, ew, ew. Ebo, you had asked before the episode whether we would want to be in the steam room with the town elders or in the steam room with these guys. <laughs> town elders. Would you really? I think I'd want to yeah. be in Rory's steam room. Yeah. The one with the caddy women, just because they're yeah. fun to listen to. That one sounds fun. I would take a steam with them. <laughs> I, that's, I think, a nom for our, like, true crime moment of the episode is when they're talking about the former wife of the guy who's, like, having an affair. And they're like, oh, he should have shot him like his first wife did. And they're like, oh, I love whatever her name is. Is she out yet? As she has been jailed for her crime. So there's another moment where Gilmore Girls takes a bit of a uh, crime-adjacent turn. But also, it's an interesting commentary. Like you mentioned um, just a few minutes ago about how like clicky this world is. And if you do something that is outside of their worldview, then you're shunned, right? But the joke being that murder is okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> like, you know, I, again, I'm literally reading American Psycho right now. And it's sort of like <laughs> comments on that. But like the you know, getting pregnant and dropping out of high school is not okay, but literal murder is fine. They reiterate that in, I think it's the second season, but it could be later. Shauna Christie, Lorelai's, yes. uh, Lorelai's high school or elementary school friend, shoots her husband and it's in the newspaper and he looks like a sprinkler system with how many times she shot him. And then Emily says, well, at least she had a husband. So Shauna Christie even, I mean, it's, it's like for laughs again, even killing her husband is, well, at least she ascribed to the social codes of getting married and didn't have a kid out of wedlock at 16. Yes. Yeah. It's pretty funny. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, so we also, then we go to the dining room at the club um, where it's clear that Richard and Rory are in like full bonding mode at this point yeah. and they're bonding uh, over the gossip that Rory has heard in the steam room, which I love. I, I mean, I, I'm cynical, much more cynical about this episode now that we've been talking about it, because I think you guys made really smart points. But I do like them gossiping and bonding. I think it's very yeah. cute. Mm -hmm. um, and then we get my two favorite characters of the episode who have been introduced before oh. but are now in full form. Um, these in fully clothed. <laughs> yes. These two old guys, whose names I don't know, but they remind me of the two Muppets in the balcony, yes. uh, Stadler and Waldorf. <laughs> I love the Muppets. I had to look at their names, though, to be sure. And, like, they are from a completely different show. Yes. <laughs> like, to me, they don't even seem like country club guys. 
They seem like old Jewish comedians. I was going to say the writing of their dialogue is so almost like slapsticky that just like does not fit with the rest of it. It does not fit with it at all. They don't seem country clubby. They threaten to take (laughs) completely out of the episode. I don't mind because I love them. I think they're hilarious, but these are not like the country club denizens you would expect. No, it's very incongruous with like everybody else in like the way that they speak and the way that they're written. They kind of remind me, have either of you seen Oh Hello, the John Mulaney? Yes! Oh my God, they are the guys from Oh Hello! It's Gil Faison and George St. (laughs) Eaglin. I I laughed so hard that entire special. I love it. I am obsessed. Oh my God. And they're the Muppets. Like, do you know what I mean? Yeah, mm-hmm. for sure. Oh, they're perfect. They feel like an Amy Sherman Palladino invention to me. Like, and especially with like her love of classic comedy, but they yeah. don't fit. No. Um, and I'm glad they're in the episode, but it is like a weird, you get the sense they're in the episode because the writers thought it was very funny. Yeah. And they may have recognized that it was not really working with the rest of it, but they didn't care because they liked them so much. Then we get Rory comes back from the her day, her outing, and we're at the diner and Rory and Lorelai are about to get dinner there. And I just want to make sure I get this, this in here. We have our first introduction of a character I like to call Tanky Luke. <laughs> so I <laughs> writing notes down on this on this notepad while I was watching yesterday. And one of the things that I have written is, is this the hottest Luke has ever looked on this show? Yes. He looks good. Unbelievable. This is a good look for him. Yes. So Tanky Luke is looking good. Do you guys know what a tanky is? No. Evo, do you I know? Think, I think I've seen it come up online. Okay, so it's an online, I mean, it's now it's an online thing. A tanky is like an, an extreme internet communist who's like obsessed with like the Soviet Union and Chairman Mao. And they're all like 15 <laughs> years old and they're like very aggressive on the internet. And I, so like when I watch Gilmore Girls, I was like, Lucas kind of has like some tanky-ish opinions, even though of course he doesn't, like, I'm just kidding. He has like normal, like liberal socialist opinions. Um, but this is a, this is our, one, our first appearance of like tanky Luke when he says that, um, that the golf course- they're like a blight on the environment. <laughs> yeah. And somebody like made a comment I saw on Reddit like a while ago that was like, Luke definitely would have voted for Trump. I was like, no, he wouldn't have. If you listen to any of his, the things that he says throughout the entire season, like two episodes later, he's going to talk about like how we stole land from the indigenous people for Thanksgiving. Like Luke is, Luke is liberal. That's such a weird statement. Why would, that blows my mind. I think they were just like Luke as an older white guy who has plaid on. But did did Luke vote in the towns uh, in the town selectmen? Oh wow, he doesn't. He didn't vote in the town. Well, I don't know. We never see him vote. He goes to bed early that night. Yeah, so he got a vote for Jackson earlier. Maybe they were just thinking he has some survivalist qualities. Okay. Unfortunately, the Gilmore's probably would have. Yeah, I always like. Well, Emily. So Richard obviously has passed by that point, but I'm like Emily. I don't think would have voted for Trump. I think Emily is also in transit on election day, because if you like look at the timing of the episodes, like that's when she's moving right down to uh, the vineyard. Yeah. So I was like, I don't think Emily would have been anywhere to vote. That's Luke Slander. But I think this also, like we see some like sprinkles of this throughout, like when he starts to really cook for Lorelai and she's like very surprised that he eats healthy and Mm -hmm. like is a good cook. I think, yeah, I don't know. I don't think this is totally incongruous from what we learn about him later on. Yeah, like Luke Luke is not what he looks like. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then we get Lorelai being mean to Rory about her little hat. No. Uh, which the to mean me, this start. Yeah, this is where the, the conflict starts. Do we want to go into that a little bit? The fact that we get Lorelai in a later scene being very mean to Rory in a weird way. Yeah, we got to just talk about the porch scene. Okay. Yeah. Can you it's, someone give us what happens in the porch scene? It starts here mm-hmm. that she's obviously threatened. And instead of being supportive of her daughter having a, you know, meaningful connection with her grandfather, she makes a little dig about Rory using the word quite. And to me, that is just so mean to make someone self-conscious about their use of language. Like that would completely throw me off. I think I'd probably like shut down for the rest of the It's because you're a nice person. <laughs> well, thank you. Quite good. Yeah. But then it escalates significantly. Yeah. And actually I'll, I will point out that this scene, I, so we, we talked previously about this, but like, we all hate this scene so much. Yeah. And it's the kind of unfortunate thing about it is that it's preceded by so much like coziness, like the setup where they're sitting outside reading books and they're on their beautiful wraparound porch and they're just having this lovely day out in nature and the Babette drops by. I love Babette. Yes. Yeah. And it's such a wonderful moment and then it quickly turns. Oh yeah, it's it's one of the scenes I think of visually when I think of iconic Gilmore Girls. Yeah. I mean, it's so lovely. So the fight they have is because Lorelai can't express to Rory that what she's really upset about is that she went to golf and enjoyed it. So she has to make up something to be actually angry over that she just isn't really pissed about. And I think we can all kind of relate to that. It's like, because I am emotionally immature sometimes, maybe more than I would like to be. Sometimes I pick fights over things that aren't really what I'm angry about because I'm not ready to be able to express what I'm truly feeling hurt about. Um, So I relate to that impulse. I also understand that you're supposed to acknowledge that the fight is ridiculous. Like, yes, you're supposed to see, in order to show us that Lorelai is not really mad about this and is mad about something else, they have to make the things she's angry about so absurd that the the viewer picks up on it. Mm -hmm. being said, I think they make it too over the top nuts. So Lorelai starts fighting with Rory about Rory borrowing a sweater and stretching it out because <laughs> Rory's boobs are bigger than hers. Oh. oh, yeah. I do think so. Something else that I think it's important to bring up is kind of like in the original, like marketing of this show when it first came out, they were kind of pitching it as like a oh, immature mom and super mature daughter, like daughter raising the mom, et cetera, et cetera. And I think this is one of those like prime examples of them trying so, so hard to make that the case and like really trying to drive that home just because you can see just so clearly this very immature side of Lorelai and how she's going about this and her inability to like express anything. And Rory, just the one telling her to like knock it off, like you're being silly. I think that's another like important dynamic to acknowledge in this as well. Yeah, and I think that's really true now that I think about it. Lorelai is a lot more immature in these early episodes than I think. Mm-hmm. And Rory a lot more parentified than eventually it shakes out. Yeah, they like eventually get to an equilibrium, but especially um, the previous episode at her first day of Chilton. Like I, these are like two of the prime examples of them trying so hard to make this their characterization. Yeah. yeah. And we've talked so much too in, on the podcast already about like the constraints of genre and of how the show was advertised and how they want to fit the show into a certain box that it seems to be sort, sort of straining against. 
And I can see it straining here when like this, <sighs> Lorelai is less ridiculous in her position and her emotions that the sh than the show wants her to seem. Mm -hmm. um, she has a right to be concerned about the sort of world that Rory is exposed to. And it, even if it doesn't make logical sense, it makes emotional sense that she would be hurt by it. But it, it, the, the scene is so flat. And the fact that they, I just want to get this on the record, the fact that they're fighting about bra size feels like something that they would, it feels like a parody of Gilmore Girls. It feels like a porn parody. Like, oh, yeah. like the Gilmore Girls are fighting about bra size and whose boobs are bigger and then they're going to kiss. Yeah. yeah. And even though it is focused on like breast size, there's still something to me that is so, and and genuinely, I mean, I don't mean like I'm triggered, but um, like genuinely upsetting to me about a mom telling her teen daughter, like you stretch out my clothes. Oh, it's awful. It's so deeply upsetting to me. And like mom's listening, don't do that to your daughters ever. <laughs> it bothers me because it's like boob size is supposed to be like a marker of like, you know, femininity and like, I guess women are supposed to want to have big boobs. Um, so I please note, I said, I guess, um, in, you know, for the sake of this joke, the implication is that that would be a good thing. But like you stretch out my clothes is also like your fat, you know? What I, mean? yeah. like, I feel like that's what a teen girl is going to register. And, and it just is so inappropriate to me. I, I, I hate it. I hate it. Maybe that was what the original draft of the scene was like, like you're stretching out my clothes and they were like, oh, that sounds too bad. Add a boob size in there thing. Oh that yeah, maybe, less, I hope. Less fat shape me. And then it just like came together in a very uncomfortable way. It's bad writing, I think. Yeah. The both like the getting even like further down to the individual words and the actual dialogue itself, like is not well written. No. Both, no. both the arc and the words they're using is just not good writing. It doesn't seem like ASP and I don't want to say that it's not and we can pin it on this writer who never comes back but I do think that maybe it's the show still finding its footing it's a bad moment the only thing that somewhat saves it is cutting to Lorelai acknowledging how mm -hmm. awful it was with Suki and the joke about being possessed by a bra obsessed spirit <laughs> obsessed demon or something yeah I think Lorelai's really mature in this next scene mm -hmm. yeah with Suki, I think it's a great conversation. And I think it shows like the depth of Lorelai's character and her as a person that like, she recognizes she was being ridiculous. She's talking it out with her age appropriate friend. Mm -hmm. um, she's gonna apologize to Rory. She plans on doing it. And she's working through her emotions about how she feels. Yeah, just like while we're talking about this scene too, this is such a good episode to set up the Suki Jackson dynamic. Oh, so <laughs> cute. Because when he sees, so just for background, because we haven't talked about this yet, yes. the like sort of, not even the B plot, like the D plot of this episode <laughs> is that uh, Suki wants to make strawberry shortcake for this wedding, but Jackson cares too much about the vegetables and the produce that he grows and he won't give her strawberries that he knows are not up to her standards. So instead he brings blueberries and she's like, what am I supposed to do with these? Make a blueberry shortcake. Shortcake. And so they it's cut delicious, to, by the way. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> and so when Suki and Lorelai are having this conversation, they're at a farm stand and Suki <laughs> is browsing the strawberries. And because Stars Hollow has approximately five people who live there, Jackson <laughs> sees them. And like you can tell how 
hurt he is that she is buying her produce from someone else. It's so good. And then the little fight they get into it, like the way that they both play it is adorable. Mm -hmm. Like when Jackson yells like, no, in a really (laughs) kiddish way. And then he like, Suki immediately starts chasing him and he's like shuffling like a Mm -hmm. small cat through the streets it's adorable we love love jackson yeah Yeah. here on fully puffed we are strong jackson fans and strong suki and jackson fans i recognize that season seven they totally botched them we do not support that but i love the way that they are in their relationship in the first six seasons they're so cute and actually i just realized that it wasn't it in the last episode i don't remember if it was in the second episode or the first but suki's mad at Jackson for bringing her subpar fruit. And so oh, yeah. now she's mad because he won't. <laughs> He's just respecting her demands. He's, he cares about the integrity of his product. Yeah. He listens. Is that too much to ask? Like, <laughs> I love Jackson. I, um, I also love like the shot when they showing like, like them running through the street in addition to just being humorous and really cute like physical comedy gives us a really nice shot of like this the town and I just I don't know I really really like that scene. Mm-hmm. Suki must kill someone yeah. by, by her inattentiveness. Um, it's really good. it's a great scene. It's a fun moment that in an episode where a lot of it is dark, um, and it really works. They always seem effortless on screen to me. Yes. Yeah. Together. So yeah, apart from that in the scene, I think Lorelai has a really strong and mature and important recognition of what's going on here dynamic wise. I think she talks us through what will essentially be like that driving dynamic of the show that we've discussed, which is like, Mm -hmm. I didn't think I raised a kid that would like this stuff. In fact, I ran from all of these things, this country club world. Didn't raise Rory to be like that. Is she really like that? I don't know. She spells it out for us pretty quickly and in a pretty concise way. And, and that is what she will have to wrestle with and what Rory will have to wrestle with throughout Gilmore Girls. Then we get to the wedding where she does apologize. This is one of my favorite scenes of the show. Mm -hmm. I just love how it looks. Yes. Yes. All of the weddings they show at the Independence Inn, both like this one, as well as Suki's later on in the series. Beautiful, beautiful grounds. Yeah. Beautiful Mm -hmm. grounds. I would get married at the Independence Inn. For oh, sure. Yeah. Gorgeous. It looks so good. This is another moment I think of when I think of iconic Gilmore Girls. We've talked about the weird lighting in this episode, but I think the way they color this scene, like the purples and pinks and blues looks beautiful. And even like the sort of like dark blue tint to the, the foliage aspects looks really nice. Photography wise, it's on point. Just while we're talking about just images, there, I noticed this as I was watching this episode again, a lot of the stills that are in the theme song are from this episode. Yes. Like a lot of them. Yeah. Lorelai kissing Rory's head when they make up. Mm-hmm. The hat. Chasing Emily through the kitchen. The hat. Mm-hmm. Oh, chasing Emily through the kitchen, which continued. That's in it for, I think, the entire series. The entire mm-hmm. series. It's a good one. And I never realized where it came from until this watch. Mm-hmm. That's a really big one. Yeah, they take a lot from this and it produces a lot of iconic images. It's mm-hmm. just funny that we've been complaining about like, it looking a little weird and it yeah. being like a totally um almost like anomalous episode otherwise yeah, yeah. and then they they put it, it it's like it carries through the the theme of the show mm-hmm. pretty much the entire time to be fair i think they put a filter on some of the images when they put them in that theme song oh yeah because i mean they're all sepia toned when they get yeah. into it somebody had the sepia filter on their like imac when they were making it. <laughs> 
Gilmore Girls sepia tones. Um, I like I like the way that Rory and Lorelai make up here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think the device with the little girl and the mom yelling at her with the skirt is really strong storytelling. Yes. Uh, it says so much in those little moments where like the girl doesn't want to put it on, the mom is pressuring her. And then Lorelai says, I did all this, you know, I was the one who did all the screaming. She says, but then she concedes like, you know, there, there are some good things about wearing those dresses. Even after Rory says, thank you for not putting me in the dress. The whole thing stands in for like, you know, this was my upbringing. Didn't like it. Thank you. Rory says for not exposing me to it. And Lorelai then concedes, you know, there, I know you may be interested in it. There are some positives. It's also a show of the darkness of her upbringing that we haven't gotten the entire episode via V, like what they've shown us at the country club. Yeah. I mean, I don't know when we first started talking and when I was thinking about this recording, I was feeling sort of like I wasn't too crazy about this episode, but I'm kind of like changing my mind now. I don't know. When you think about Gilmore Girls through the lens of PTSD and trauma, and as we were talking about even briefly about country club culture and what that represents, and also we do get some of this from um, Tanky Luke. <laughs> um, so glad this is catching on. If you will. Yes. Um, like Lorelai is a traumatized person. Yeah. Uh, her upbringing was traumatic getting pregnant at 16, like having a baby that young, like the physical act of having a baby that young, I'm, I'm sure is extremely traumatic. Um, she was nearly homeless. I mean, she lived in a garden shed yeah. with a newborn. Um, she's, you know, has, has some arrested development, I think, because of her trauma. And so maybe we're just supposed to see her lashing out at Rory as being, you know, this kind of like a PTSD response the apology is so good and it's so the Lorelai that we will come to see mm-hmm. that I'm more willing now I guess to kind of forgive the the bra size incident. I'm a Lorelai apologist in most aspects and I think for me like maybe it's because I'm like this but I tend to lash out initially like with an emotional response in situations but I am often able to come back like 10 mm-hmm. minutes later like a day later and be like hey this is why I was feeling like I was, let me explain it to you. And that's what I like about Lorelai. Like, I think I care more about where she comes to at the end of things mm-hmm. than how she initially reacts. However, I also understand that like when I do that, it hurts people. And when Lorelai does that, it hurts people and it's not really excusable. Yeah, I think it just bothers me that she's doing it to her child. I mean, I said, I think it does. It does, it's bad. Um, but part of that is because her, do- her you know, daughter is her best friend. I mean, outside of Suki. Love, I love the Lorelai Suki relationship. I know that's very often. Mm-hmm. It's such a good friendship. They're so good for each other. Oh, I, people are always like, Lorelai treats Suki poorly. Like, does she? No, she doesn't. No. no, she doesn't. I was thinking about this as I was like watching some episode yesterday. The only time I can think of when Lorelai treats Suki poorly is when she accidentally says like, you haven't been in a relationship for a while in one of the episodes. Yeah. And then she's like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. When she like, uh, like immediately realizes she touched the, like the big red button. Mm-hmm. And she's like, oh no. Yeah. They, they have a great friendship. They're, they're great together. There's one episode where they get in a big fight when they're starting oh, the dragonfly, but like, that's understandable. That's understandable. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Laura like lashes out at her when she thinks the, the, um, independence in is closing, but then she comes around and she apologizes. So great. apologies are important. Uh, that's <laughs> our them. <laughs> Be nice to people, but if you can't be at first, apologize. But try to be nice in general. Uh, that's less than a fully puffed pod. 
<laughs> yeah, I, I like this scene. I think it's a really good apology. I think it feels earned and it feels realistic. Yeah. I do have a question about whether you guys like something else in this scene. Do you think the like we are family song dancing stuff is too on the nose? Cause I do and I don't yeah. like it. <laughs> yes. I like it. I like the like seeing that super uptight mother loosen up when her song comes on. But the fact that it was we are family, I thought was way too like that's way too heavy handed. There are so like white, sorry, white people like so many more songs at weddings than just we are family. <laughs> Put sweet Caroline on. And everybody like, <laughs> that would have the immediate same effect. Mm-hmm. I still dance along to the song when this part of the episode happens, but I'm always like, oh, especially since it comes right before like the really subtle moment, not subtle moment, but well done moment with like the petticoats thing. Mm-hmm. I'm like, that's how you do that. Well, I'm really intrigued by scenes of and uh, listeners, I'm using air quotes here, fun in <laughs> television and movies like what does fun look like? And it often includes a conga line, especially <laughs> if it's in the late 90s. Do you ever Some see from that? a group dance. Did you ever see the like the 1996 DNC video when everyone is doing the Macarena? Yes. Like oh Hillary Clinton is doing, uh, listeners, I'm doing the Macarena right now, is doing the Macarena and it's just people of every race and age doing the Macarena in like these, this arena at the DMC. Oh no. It's They're so all wearing bad. clothing and it's like, it's so of its time and it's like very cringeworthy, but also like earnest. Um, it's so much. We'll find a way to post it. Also like conga lines aren't fun. No. <laughs> I'm sorry. Maybe, maybe this is a hot take, hot but take. <laughs> the fully puff pod stance on conga lines. No. I I do think it's important for me to put the caveat, a caveat on that, which is that I did one time when I was like 14, I want to say, I was almost trampled by a conga line at a summer camp dance. Were you really? Yes, I was. Let me set the scene for you. (laughs) We're at diabetes camp. Sure. You know, a formative place for me. And we had Tuesday dance night every Tuesday with the boys camp down the road and so I was like dancing in a circle with my friends whatever and they all like scattered and I was like what is happening I'm just like really feeling the music (laughs) and a conga line comes and I had fallen and then the conga line was coming and then my camp cat well she wasn't my camp she's somebody who worked there um came and like grabbed me right before they the conga line came for me (laughs) so maybe I just have a lot to unpack with regards to conga lines but just not fun not 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 fun I feel like the theme of this podcast episode is like unknown dangers (laughs) swans conga lines (laughs) steam room fungus This is a public service announcement about (laughs) the dangers of steam rooms, waterfowl, and conga lines. (laughs) Sort of a dark question, but do you think if you had been killed by the conga line, like trampled, people would have like your parents would have told people that's how you died? To make up a different death for you. What would the like news headline say? Local girl, comma 13, comma crushed to death by conga line. This is, um, remember like later, much later in the show, Lorelai is having nightmares that she keeps dying in silly ways. Yes. <laughs> Crushed by a conga line is a perfect silly way to die. 
oh my gosh, I can't remember what any of the ways she says are, but they're definitely not as silly as getting crushed by a conga line. I think no, I also like love once we start to see that when like Lorelai's stress response is to have like crazy stress dreams. Yeah. That's, That's my stress thing that gets added. Yeah. It's it's very relatable and it's super fun. It allows them to do a lot of fun stuff visually. So what we've learned from this episode is hidden dangers. And when people have fun on television or at political events, they do synchronized dancing. <laughs> and it may not be fun for the participants, but maybe they feel pressured to look like they're having fun. The mom is definitely like four drinks deep. Oh, um, maybe like yeah. six or seven. <laughs> uh, a few Chardonnays. <laughs> a few Chardonnays. She got that massage from Antonio Banderas. She's got the soup and salad option. She is loosened up. Which, by the way, we didn't talk about this, but ew, I don't want to be massaged by a man, A. Yeah, same. And B, if he, like, in my hotel room by myself. Yeah. (laughs) No. Another murder situation, by the way. (laughs) But, like, I'm not going to care, like, in a situation where I was forced, I suppose, to have a massage by a man in a hotel room, I would not want him to be hot. Ew. Ew. You wouldn't want him to be ugly, but you wouldn't want him to be hot neutral no, I I want, want like him. a seven out of ten that's fair yeah maybe a six and a half mm. the way Lorelai talks about him also implies that he's a gigolo yeah yeah <laughs> like, that like if she wants to take things further that option is <laughs> available to her and it's like what does this man know he's being marketed in this way that certain expectations for his looks and behavior are being set up beforehand this is um, this is perhaps also a Kilmore Girls segment, the secret <laughs> prostitution ring. The fact that Lorelai might be trafficking some of her male employees. <laughs> when Paris goes, and I think it's next season or season three, when they try to find the dark side of Stars Hollow for the newspaper. Oh, yeah. This. Yes. This is the dark side of Stars Hollow. That's why the Independence <laughs> Inn burns down. A, a disgruntled former person who was trafficked just, like, <laughs> ah, screw this, lights it up. On that note, on note of like strange things that could be happening at the Independence Inn, do we want to talk about like the twins and doubles stuff? I mean, there's just so much doubling. There's like the twins, two sets of twins. There's Lorelai and Rory, both Lorelai's. And then they talk about the third Lorelai at, at the dinner. A classic Gilmore Girls continuity moment. Can we also yeah. pause for a second and acknowledge the fact that it's like Rory seems surprised that there was a third Lorelai. Like she doesn't know her great grandmother's name. Yeah, I feel like Lorelai would have told her about that. That like, ah, yeah. there was also a great grandmother named Lorelai. I know that Lorelai has been trying to shelter Rory from this world, whatever, whatever. But she would tell her about her ancestors, right? At the very least, their names. Name Especially if it's also yeah. her name. She's maybe yeah. not talking to her about it like Aunt Mary, but like great grandma Lorelai. Like she's gonna come up. Yeah, it's not like their name is Anne. Like, also, I always thought it was weird that, like, you can tell they want, they were setting her up to be dead and then, like, kind of like an offhand mention because they say she's dead. But then the way that Emily reacts to her makes it clear that she doesn't like her. She's like, okay, yeah. let's basically, like, let's change the subject, John Mulaney voice. It seems like you're obviously supposed to take away from that that, like, Emily didn't get along with her. But how would that ever come up? Because she was going to be dead. Yeah. Like, it's like they're setting up the actual dynamic that ends up happening when they, like, resurrect her. But, like, why were they doing that in the first place? (laughs) When they resurrect her. All right, people who have not seen the show, like, they end up making the grandmother alive. And then she dies. In this season, she comes back. She dies in season four. 
Hello Kitty underwear. Yeah. Yeah. But then they, she's the lady who plays her plays like another relative. So it's like, she didn't die. Oh yeah, that's true. Yeah. I had to, I did not notice that at first. Somebody else pointed that out to me. I'm not that perceptive. I didn't notice the gypsy was uh, Emily's maid in the revival until I read it online. <laughs> yeah. It's Rose Abdu. What? Yeah. It's very shocking for me. Big. Or that, um, what's her face? Uh, uh, Sherry Lynn Fenn is both Jess's mom and April, um, not a- uh, Anna Nardini. Yes. Yeah. yeah she's yeah. the guy that, or she's the lady that um, Jess's dad is married to and Anna Nardini. They just put a different wig on her. Mm-hmm. I did notice that one. <laughs> yeah. Oh, did you notice the girl um, who's like, like <laughs> in the uh, nail polish gang in the pilot episode who says she's doing the assignment? That's Tristan's girlfriend, Summer. Later. <gasps> what? Yeah. Okay, so Gilmore Girls is doing doubling things throughout episodes, and it's doing twinning things in this episode. Yeah. So, like, we, good segue. Uh, twins <laughs> are always associated in literature with, like, the uncanny and, like, the return of the repressed. I don't know what we want to do with that, besides from the fact that, number one, this is an uncannily shot episode, and it feels like a, a hidden stepchild to, like, the rest of this season slash Gilmore Girls. But also, like, everyone except Lorelai in the end gets a double. Like, at yeah. the end of the show, or, like, gets paired off with someone. Yeah, they and all get paired off. They all get paired off, or they get, like, threed off in the case of, like, Richard and Rory and Emily. And Lorelai is left alone by herself on the couch. Which I think, to me, is a great way to end the episode because it signals that the conflict, while she and Rory may have made up, that conflict is not resolved. Mm-hmm. Like, the conflict of, like, where is Rory going to, is she going to try to assimilate into the Gilmore's world? Is she going to try that out? How is this going to affect who Rory is? Is she going to be drawn into it, et cetera? That signals to you. And I think that's like a nice narrative move that like, this is going to be something that drives the show. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It kind of bothers me because it's such a weird move. The ending? Yeah. Like, well, Lorelai's choice, like social niceties dictate that if the entire group goes into the other room, even if you don't really care about what they're looking at, you go in and you feign interest, right? <laughs> to like be a part of the situation. You don't just sit by yourself sulking. And I understand that like she's supposed to feel excluded. They didn't invite her. Emily didn't say, Lorelai, come on, let's go look at this book. But at the same time, she could make an effort to go in and, and try. And I think that's sort of the Lorelai way that she just doesn't want to even try to fit into this world at all. She's not willing to. Yeah, yeah I think that's more of it. Yeah. Not that she couldn't, like it's made clear that she could, if she wanted to. Yeah. It's interesting. I also like, just wanted to briefly mention, like you see so many parallels between not only Rory and I say Rory weird. And I was like editing the podcast. I was like, Oh, I do not pronounce it in a way that sounds. Are you going to say between Emily and Lorelai? Yes. So we've been, yeah, we've been talking about this a ton. Yeah. And I think also, but like the interesting thing is the way that like Emily relates to Richard and how she kind of like speaks for him and he's like the more intellectual dreamy one is really similar to how Lorelai relates to Rory. Yeah, good point. And that's creepy, but interesting. Yeah, and I do think there is just like, obviously there's the big, like more explicit dynamic between Emily and Lorelai, but there's also the, the subtle side of it where you can see that part of the reason why they do not relate to each other is that it's just because like they're so similar. So they're, similar. they're both very stubborn, like hard-headed, outspoken about what they want and like very unwilling to bend to anything. And so I think that is just like, this is a good episode that kind of shows that tension or like that dynamic as well. 
Yeah. And as much as Lorelai is unwilling to participate in Emily's world, we see the same tension when Emily tries to participate in Lorelai and Rory's world. Mm-hmm. Because she she tries to bend to it and can't. And sometimes does successfully and sometimes doesn't. Same with Lorelai, sometimes participating in the children's world and the good grandparents' world when she has to. Yeah, because even as I just brought that up about feeling like Lorelai was being kind of socially weird by not going into the library really if if you're in a room and there's only there's you and one other person Emily's supposed to stay there that or or invite the other person you don't just like leave and completely ignore someone so I'm feeling a lot more sympathetic to Lorelai and thinking more about her reactions as being trauma responses now than I was when I was just watching it for enjoyment, like mm-hmm. and just being like, oh, come on, yeah. you know? Yeah, I don't know. I feel for her. And I think that the episode is doing a lot really subtly about classism and elitism and double standards and 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 kind of highlighting reasons why Lorelai would have left, not just because she was hot-headed or a rebel. Mm-hmm. She wanted to do her own thing, but like focusing on the fact that this is not a healthy dynamic or a healthy world. You've made me think about it differently, the two of you, because I always, you know, I think positively about this episode because I'm like, oh, this is when Rory and Richard bond and they have a nice time together. And oh, the world doesn't look so bad. But what you've shown me is that the episode is doing a lot of subtle stuff to set up that like, yeah, there is a lot at work in this world that's not great. And that's actively harmful in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. Joanne Waters. Joanne Waters, our girl. We denigrated you in the beginning. I'm going to take this on as a personal project. I just need to find her. <laughs> find her for us, Ebo. You can also be our special Joanne Waters correspondent. <laughs> Great. I will just, just, I'll be the pinch hitter for all of these like niche things you need someone to do. <laughs> so you guys want to do segments? Yes. Let's do it. First segment, fashion report. <laughs> Catherine, what do you have for us? Well, I guess I already kind of like I spoiled the beauty and fashion segment by bringing up Suki's tie-dye, sparkle, shrunken baby tee with skirt and jean jacket, which is just a whole look I do not like. And if if you have contrasting opinions, I would love to hear them, but I'm very opposed to this. I feel that it is an omen of bad fashion to come. That's it, bad outfit that sticks out to me. And then I love Lorelai's lilac sweater and then of course her amazing dress at the oh, wedding the wedding mm-hmm. dress with like the attached scarf is so yes. good mm-hmm. it's so bad on someone else but it works so well on Lorelai clinging in just the perfect ways that I would never feel comfortable wearing but Lauren Graham pulls it off in the contentious sweater scene the like striped turtleneck looking thing that Rory wears before she needs to go get the sweater I was like oh I, I would wear that really cute the contentious sweater scene features some good sweaters. You can see why they would be problematically upset about them being stretched out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I also like Lorelai's little outfit, like little transparent sh- see-through shrug and dress in the first scene. I think it looks really great on her, especially yeah. in that lighting. She looks gorgeous. I mean, Lauren Graham always looks really, really good, but her hair and makeup this whole episode is excellent. Lorelai's going to rock some good shrugs for like oh, the rest of the show. Yeah, <laughs> yeah she is. <laughs> I was rewatching season five and I texted Catherine about some, like I included a screen cap and you were like, oh, they do some really good sweater and uh, dress game in this. And I was like, yeah, season five is a strong sweater and dress. And I think is season five when we start to see the pink coat come in too. Oh, I think coat. it is. Rory with the curl hair pink coat. No, Lorelai's pink oh, coat. Oh, I don't know what you're talking about then. 
Lorelai has this like it looks like it's like a wool or like a quilted pink winter coat that just like comes up a lot she wears it a lot and it's just oh it looks so good Mm -hmm. we have to keep a watch out for this I'll be the coat watcher I meant to point out Lorelai's camel coat I think from the pilot I have this thing where I feel like a camel like a wool long like dress coat camel colored coat is -hmm. like the epitome of sophistication in my mind and I it's a it's a life goal to own one I suppose I could I mean could get one it's because magazines used to heavily feature them in their like how to dress thing because I also feel like they are (laughs) extremely essential like a sophisticated lady wardrobe and I think it's because it was always like top it with a camel coat for your work yeah Yeah. I was like interesting I'm seven I think that we are deeply divided by the beret issue oh yes I think that's okay we're a pod that welcomes differences of opinion We can acknowledge and encourage our friends to think for themselves about every topic, including, but not limited to, headwear. Headwear. And why it comes in Rasta colors. It's clearly a divisive accessory. So that's our fashion report, I think. Uh, How about pop culture? So this is what I really wanted to talk about. I was not aware of who H.L. Mencken was. I think I would just always hear Mencken's Cressonomy and just be like, oh, that's some obscure reference. And I never have thought to like look it up. But I like Googled him and immediately like pull up his just Wikipedia page. I want to say I'm not an expert on H.L. Mencken by in any way, shape, or form. But um immediately his, you know, I start seeing like in reference to his beliefs, Nietzsche, Ayn Rand, racism, anti-Semitism, anti-democratic pro-war but isolationist and opposed to the U.S. entering World War II and I was like whoa this is a weird choice to be like Rory would like to read this man's work. I've always thought it was a weird illusion because most of the Gilmore Girls book illusions are like books you would read in you know advanced high school lit class or college class Tolstoy, Joyce, Plath, Flaubert, Beckett and this one just seemed really odd and so I don't know what the now infamous Joanne Waters was trying to do with this. He was also a, a humorist. And we know later that Rory and, and Richard connect with like P.G. Wodehouse and satirists and humorists. And, you know, Rory quotes Mark Twain. And apparently Mencken was a huge fan of Twain. So it could be that simple that he was a famous humorist and a journalist. And that's that. And like, I also understand that this podcast is happening in 2022. Mm-hmm. and so you know, we're looking at authors like Mencken or Rand in kind of a different way than the show does. He believed in like natural elitism. So apparently he was against eugenics and he was against the notion of a superior Aryan race, but he believed in a sort of fundamental elitism that is really icky, (laughs) to put it simply. And combined with his racism and anti-Semitism, I feel like the end scene where, you know, Richard and Emily basically like take Rory away to go look at this author who (laughs) is deeply problematic and Lorelai is the only one who stays like that's a really profound statement to me but you would have to really dig into H.L. Mencken to know that so I don't know if it was deliberate or not but well it's still fascinating like it's like they're all so they've been indoctrinated not indoctrinated like inducting her into this like anti-popularist elitist society and like by giving her the book that's sort of like the grounding moment of this, or it's like a more 
less direct and more direct symbol of that, regardless of intention. I think it works in really interesting ways. Joanne Waters. Joanne Waters. Joanne. If you're Joanne Waters and you're listening to our podcast because you heard us mention your name a lot, please reach out to us. We would love to have you <laughs> and to hear your thoughts. We already did kill more girls, I think, pretty thoroughly in the episode itself. Should we rate this episode? And should we also rate last week's episode, which we forgot to rate? Yes. So let's do this one first. Ebo, please rate with us. On a scale of one to five. One to ten. One to ten. You can do more like leeway. You can also do 0.5 ratings, which I did the first episode. I think I'm going to give it a solid seven, six, six and a half, seven, somewhere okay. around there for purely enjoyment purposes. But in terms of like an importance factor in like the characterization and setting up this world and all of these storylines, I do think it is closer to an eight from that perspective. I think that's a good call. I think I'm going to give it a seven, five. A 7.5 or a 7 and a 5? 7.5. Oh. <laughs> well, no, because I think I, I think I want to do a double rating too. That's good. That's a good I idea. I think because you're right that as a whole, I would give this a 5 or 6, I think. It's just, I don't know. It's it's not my favorite. You know, there's the, 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 the sweater fight is upsetting to me and I don't like golf. I mean, not that I'm saying this like you guys love golf. I'm like, I'm sorry. I just don't like golf. No, it just, I find it a little boring and it's just like a bit of an outlier, like we've been talking about. So I'm going to give it a five or a six, but in terms of setting up future plot and characterization, I think it's probably more like maybe an 8.5. Yeah. It's funny because I talked so much about our, pre- on our previous two episodes about how much I enjoyed this. And then everybody's going to listen and be like, did Grace even like this episode? <laughs> but just, like, I didn't like it as much as I remembered liking it. And when I say remembered, I mean like how much I liked it when I watched it last month. We were even thinking about stuff different in different ways. I yeah. always hated next week's episode and I liked it when I rewatched it. So we'll see. Yeah, I love next week's episode. So I wonder if I'll <laughs> <laughs> I think I feel a lot like season one in general, I tend to feel like this. Like I don't enjoy a a lot of the episodes on their own, but I see like they're all very important for like building everything that's to come. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's absolutely fair. How about last week? Ebo, you can also rate the Lorelai's Fair State Children with us if you would like. Just why didn't she just leave her coat on? Just leave. You know what? (laughs) Thank you, Ebo. Wear pajamas. It would be better. We talked about this too. Evo is a true puff. <laughs> yeah, last I really I really do like that episode. I would I would give it an eight. I think I'd probably give it an eight as well. I'll give it an eight too. Um, I think it last week's conversation really convinced me that it did a super good job setting up chillin'. Let's do it. All right, solid okay. eights all around. Great. <laughs> so thank you for listening, everyone. Um, we've just on a you know personal note, we've been really humbled by the amount of support you have shown us. We never expected this many people to listen to the pod. We are just really touched by all of you Gilmore Girls fans who are listening, all of our friends who are listening, all of the people who are both of those things. Thank you. And we want to thank Ebo for coming on, for being like the best guest we could possibly imagine and for pushing us to have a really fascinating conversation. Yes, thank you. Yeah, hopefully I did well enough to get a return, like an invite to a return episode. You can come back whenever you want. Come back on this season too. Yeah, just let me know. Yeah, (laughs) pick an episode that you like and you can come on. I want to talk about Max Medina. Oh, we both have Max Medina opinions. Mm -hmm. I got some thoughts and Catherine has some different (laughs) thoughts. So we'll be talking about this. Yeah. Yes. All right. 
Thank you, everybody. And if you would like, it would be really helpful if you could rate us and review us on iTunes. And follow us on Instagram. And Twitter and recommend us to your friends. Hooray! <laughs>